0: Hi, it's Arjun with the video this week to give an update on where things stand in the energy cycle. I want to go through three key themes. The first is returns. Returns on capital have been and remain quite healthy, and I'll provide some additional color on that and what we're looking for, what are some signposts that we're staying on track or may get off track. I want to talk about financing. There are continuous developments on, I'll just call it, questions about access to financing for traditional energy. That comes from the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, which is generally hostile to traditional energy, but even through this regional banking crisis, which I think does create some challenges here in the United States. The last big theme I want to talk about is duration and this concept of extending the runway. It is controversial. Uh, People only want, in in terms of investors, dividends and stock buybacks. On the other hand, there is a need for all companies, especially publicly traded ones, to extend that period. By which you can deliver good returns. And how do you do that without falling into the traps of last cycle where you ruin returns or ruin your balance sheet or some combination of the two things? So it is about extending the runway, but doing so in a way where returns on capital and the fortress balance sheet are ultimately maintained. So I think if I could summarize the ultimate fear of capital spending, it is this that we somehow repeat what I'm going to call the quadrilateral of death, which was a really uh, it started good and ended poorly in terms of the cycle. on this is to some degree, the cycle of returns for all capital intensive businesses, but this is the oil and gas business. And this is the universe of you know, 75 to 80 publicly traded companies. This is the last cycle the super spike era from 2002 to 2014. And I think if you follow the color codings, you'll get the basic point. The green line, we started good. Really good last cycle. 2002 bottom left. And this is a graph, by the way, of return on capital on the y axis versus oil prices on the x axis. From 2002 to 2006, the green line, oil went up, returns on capital went up. This was the sweet spot of the cycle. Good times, sector rallied, did very well. The warning signs came between 2006 to 2008, which was generally considered still kind of the heart of that bull market where oil rallied from 2006 to 2008 by another $35 a barrel. We got as high as 147 We averaged 100 That was the start of the financial crisis at the end of it. But the bigger point is returns on capital started to fall. This is where capital spending, maybe being too aggressive on growth, some bad projects start to creep in or what became bad projects. Returns on capital started to erode. And this, frankly is the warning sign that I personally regret sort of ignoring. And my comment was sort of in 2008, hey, returns are still good, even if they've eroded a little bit. That was not the right conclusion. You can see that through the red bar. From 2008 to 2012, 13, 14, oil was kind of in a range. Returns on capital did nothing but fall to the point that by the time you got to 2014 or, or even 2012 returns on capital in a $100 oil environment were really no better than what they were in 2002 at $25 oil. I mean, again, oil prices quadrupled, returns were unchanged. And it is this quadrilateral of death that absolutely investors are fearful of, and that we are trying to avoid as a sector and as investors, uh, this go-round. A lot of lessons here. A lot of people say, Hey, you made a great call on oil, calling for $100 oil when everyone still thought the range was lower. Yes, that was great. But what I regret is is ignoring or making excuses for the returns erosion. That's actually my regret in that 2008 period. We had a huge bounce back in the sector from the bottom of the financial crisis to 2010. So there can be lots of counter trend trading dynamics. But from the big picture perspective, the cycle ended, frankly, in 2006 even though it still felt okay through 2008 and in that 2011 to 14 period at around $100 oil, people were still generally optimistic, very falsely so uh, with the benefit of clear hindsight. It is ultimately all about capital spending. That is what drives returns on capital. It is what drives the sector. And I'd say so far, I think the good news is that while capital spending is up off its COVID troughs basically, We are, and we're somewhat tracking the last cycle. We are still way below what I'm going to call danger zone levels. So you can see some data points here. 2008, um, we stayed, you know, once we got to a high level of capital spending in 07 and 08, we stayed there for another eight years. The goal is it's not just about the absolute capital spending numbers, but I think this is a good signpost of how are we doing? Can we still feel good about returns? And there is scope here. I know people hate when I say this. There's scope investors I should say hate when I say this for capital spending to increase further before we start worrying about things. One of the things that I look at on a real-time basis is this trajectory of quarterly oil prices and returns on capital. And you can see the data points for uh, 2021, 2022, and you know we now basically have all the fourth quarter numbers done and all the 10 Ks updated for the most part. And again, this is a, a similar universe of 75 to 80 publicly traded companies. The good news is we are above the historic regression line of oil prices to returns on capital. Even though oil prices are down, you can see two Q twenty two to Q three to Q four a sequential dec- decline in oil prices. But from a structural standpoint, from a from a longer term cycle standpoint, returns on capital still doing better than the, this will erode a little bit towards that h- historic regression. There's going to be some cost inflation. There is some capex increase. I think its way I look at it is, if oil was to trade off to 50 or 60 dollars a barrel, I, I think this would still give an indication that returns on capital would be no worse than cost of capital. and it's sort of like, how are we doing at the trough of the cycle? That's a sign of a healthy industry. and I think we're going to be at sort of cost of capital, returns at the trough. and if all prices are better than that, 89 or 100 or, or even higher at least so far, with capital spending still closer to trough levels, I think we can feel good that this basic relationship is intact, even if I think there might be, there's going to inevitably be some regression as costs inflate here. And as I've pointed out many times, this is the return on capital versus S&P weighting. Again, the 2022 number, if someone wants to say that's inflated for high oil prices, that's fine. There is a lot of scope for returns to perhaps come off that 2022 level, and still implies significantly higher S&P weighting. You can do this with earnings. So I've done this one with returns on capital. Basic point is, as or when investors gain confidence that returns on capital are going to be better, at least for a subsect of the companies, if not for the median company, the S&P weight will absolutely increase. And I'm on record as saying the S&P weight ought to at least double. And I think at the peak of the cycle, it could ultimately have tripled. Uh, from this five percent level, I would expect at least a ten percent S and P weighting, and ultimately perhaps as much as a fifteen percent weighting. And we'll see how this decade progresses. But that would be my my sort of over under type uh, type type estimate. Let me shift now to the financing side of the the equation, where I, I think there continues to be troubling long term warning signs, and it's one of these slow drip kind of things where conditions become a little harder a few more companies decide they're not going to finance new oil and gas it, it, it's not it's not the imminent threat that i'm worried about that we're going to wake up tomorrow and all finance will be gone it's that long term threat and our companies prepared and our investors prepared for a more, a, more a potentially more challenging financing environment when you look out over a decade again it's not about tomorrow all the banks are going to go away or what have you although some are i mean we've seen in europe Munich Re first, then HSBC, and now ING, and I'm probably missing Swiss Re or somebody else, have all said they're not going to finance, or in the case of Munich Re, ensure new oil and gas fuels. These are troubling developments that I have repeatedly said are going to be bad for humanity. They're going to be bad for citizens. They're bad for companies, and they're bad for non-energy companies, by the way. All the world needs energy. This is 83% of energy mix today. It's not on track to be materially lower 10 years, 20 years, or 30 years from now, maybe a little bit lower, maybe not. Having these companies go through with this idea, I've said this many times, I probably need to stop repeating it, but that IEA net zero by 2050 report, really, really damaging report that these companies are taking as a definitive statement that they need to stop financing. Anyway, I think the risk is that this continues to grow. We've seen the demise of Credit Suisse, which you know I'm, I am sorry to see go. Uh, they've been a tremendous investment bank, especially here in the United States, and they've been a huge financier of the shale boom and of traditional energy companies in the United States in particular. Uh, I think this accelerates the departure of European financial institutions from traditional energy. Now, I've, I've said this in some of the posts. Some of you, especially in the US, will say, who cares? <laughs> Did Europe ever really matter anyway? Um, you know, I, I think you have to be, be careful with that. I think you have to be careful from a few points. First, they have, in some cases, been meaningful financiers. Second, from insurance markets, they've been even more meaningful. doesn't apply to every company, but there's only some companies that are going to need uh, a syndicate of insurance companies for a variety of reasons. I think you run the risk of that segment going away. And then what is the plan? Again, what is the plan long-term? This is not about next year or even the year after. 10 years from now. And by the way, how do we know this isn't going to spread to the U.S.? I, I hope it does not, and I think there's some signs of pushback. We've seen. Um, I give the Vanguard CEO a lot of credit for being a voice of reason. I give Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan a lot of credit for being a pragmatic voice of reason. But what happens in ten years when it's different people in charge? What's what's going to be their ideology? Uh, you know, and I think you know, I'm I'm very concerned about this trend. I think it's a long term trend, and it is why I continuously advocate for. Self financing as much as possible. I think SVP highlights the regional banking risk. And I think there are a lot of companies in the US, especially smaller ones, maybe some of the private folks who now are Super Spike subscribers will say, well, you know, all that European stuff, all that climate ideology, i.e., net zero, GFANS, whatever the heck these acronyms are, it doesn't apply to me. Well, I think SVP should be a wake up call. Um, We've got some challenges in our banking system. I'm personally not calling for. GFC 2, Great Financial Crisis 2. I, I didn't call it GFC 1, so you may not want to rely on my track record there. But but I think you do have to wonder what is the, the, the future of regional banks, how they improved, how, what, what gets shored up. Um, and hopefully this won't infiltrate Texas and Oklahoma regional banks, but it might. And so let's just be prepared for it. How do we think about long-term financing for your company, the sector, or even if you're an investor? And again, maybe I just said this, will US financial companies remain rational? Will they remain pragmatic? Or do they go down the road of sort of EU climate only ideology? It's it's a risk. And it's a risk to be mindful of. It's not going to be answered on a one-year timeframe. It's a 10-year risk. Again, I've been a big advocate for a Fortress balance sheet, and it seems like companies are moving in that direction. This is net debt for the same universe of 75 to 80 publicly traded companies, and we've seen a dramatic improvement in net debt. The point of having an improved balance sheet is to give you financial flexibility to do things that make sense. That can be certainly dividends and stock buybacks through the ups and downs, and it can be selective investment. That last point I know investors don't want to hear, but uh, I'm going to get to it in a second. Extending the duration by which you have advantage assets is as important as anything. Uh, if you want to be able to continue to do dividends and stock buybacks, and it is all in the context of not ruining the returns on capital and repeating the quadrilateral of debt. That is for sure what we're trying to avoid. So The last bit that I wanted to talk about is this concept of extending the runway. A few points. Shale is maturing. Now I think it's still going to grow. I think if someone's in the Permian Basin as an example, or some of the other shale plays, uh, there can be a lot in room to both maintain and have some modest rate of growth. But it, that's not a comment that shale is over. Quite the contrary. But I don't think it's going to be the only game in town. We have a new upcycle underway, and we have all this energy transition risk and uncertainty, which means the old type of business models. These sort of, we only want to be a peer play. We only want to be in this one specific area. Uh, we're gonna focus on some confident volumetric metric and presume it generators, like all that stuff is to some degree, maybe not out the window, but I think we're in a world where there's going to be different models. And I wouldn't confuse that, this notion of having different models with you're gonna get a really high multiple. It's not, I don't think it's about the multiple anymore. I think it's about, how you generate, think about generating returns on capital, generating free cash flow, giving some meaningful portion of that back to investors, and then using some amount of the excess to keep doing that going forward. And so while on the one hand, you may not like your multiple, I'd say on the other hand, that also means there are opportunities because cost of capital is higher. The opportunity to generate a better return on capital is higher. It just may not be in what has worked for or what people have wanted to do. For the past 10, 20, 30, 50 years. It, it, it is a world that whether it's going to transition or not. And I'm 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 of the view that oil demand, gas demand, even coal demand is going to grow for 20, 30, 50 years uh, on some of those metrics uh, going forward. But the the world is thinking about these things differently. And I think companies need to adapt. I, I just mentioned it. Business model, geographic diversification. I think there's it's, it's, in some respects, more interesting. There are more different things to do. you got to have capital. And I think you got to be willing to do things differently than what you've done in the past. Th- there is a question on sort of whether the publicly traded model, it brokens too strong of a word, but, but whether it's optimal or not for this environment. I, I went through it uh, in one of the last few, last week, I went through it in a post. I talked about this, uh, I think, six months ago on a previous post. There's some pros and cons to being private and to being public. I don't think the default assumption that public is the better way to go is necessarily the right one. And I think this is something we're gonna keep coming back to if you're public, can you go private? There are obviously some questions there. I think what's more interesting is if you're private, do you want to stay private? And again, there's no one size fits all answers to these types of questions. I think it's worthy of discussion. I think the final point that I'm gonna end on here is which public companies, if any, have earned that right to spend. I think investors would say no one. <laughs> There's not a company that has earned the right to spend. And I'd say, that's fine. I understand where you're coming from, quadrilateral of death, don't wanna repeat it. Again, I live through it, I understand it. Um, we're in a world where oil, gas, and even coal demand is likely to grow. No one wants it to grow. No one thinks it's going to grow. Cost of capital is higher. You're not allowed to do anything. Capital spending is closer to trough than to peak. That smacks of opportunity. This is not a green light that every company should crank up CapEx. Just the opposite. This is not a green light that we should go back to drill, baby, drill. Not at all. It is that same point that there must be opportunities in this kind of environment. So I'd like to end this video on a personal note and really wish Columbia Center on Global Energy Policy a happy 10th anniversary. The gala is this week in New York. I'm actually recording this before I've attended the gala, uh, and I'm recording it because I will be with Columbia most of this week. This is an affiliation that I I joined the advisory board in 2017. And I think most of you know, all of my career has been on Wall Street, learning and being involved with public policy has actually been fascinating. I think it's been a very complementary skill set. So as people's careers progress, I think one of the questions is, what are the steps I should take? I think for me personally, diversifying my skill set, spending time in the public policy space, and I'm also now on the advisory board for ClearPath, uh, which is also a public policy shop, it has really enriched, uh, helped my understanding of the energy sector. And I'll say this. About the, the, the research team at Columbia, which I've been very involved with. I have really loved and enjoyed the very intense discussion and debates we had. Everybody has different perspectives. I'm not saying my views right, their views wrong, just the opposite. I get a lot of pushback on things that I say and right, believe it or not. But then I'm able to push back on some of their perspectives. And it is the intensity of that debate with some really high-quality people, which is why I have loved being part of the Center on Global Energy Policy. And we are in a world where at least in the university setting, some people say, well, maybe you can't have debate anymore. Maybe only one side prevails in that perspective. That is not my experience at Columbia's Center on Global Energy Policy. And however you perceive that either Eileen or Jason Bordoff leans or anybody else leans, I can tell you within CCHIP, within the research scholar community they have there, there is so much discussion, so much debate, and I am personally grateful for it and better off for it. And I, again, want to wish CGIP a happy 10th anniversary birthday. Thank you.